0: Hello, it's Wednesday 10th of January. I'm Hannah Pearson. On our first show of 2024, Gary Bowerman and I will discuss our top 10 travel wishlist for the year ahead. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show.
1: Hello and Happy New Year wherever you are in the world. Thanks for listening in. So as we begin the second full calendar year of travel and tourism in Southeast Asia since the pandemic, it's time to look ahead at what the 2024 year of travel might offer. Hannah and I have put together a list of our top 10 travel and tourism wishes, expectations, and forecasts for 2024. It's certainly going to be a competitive and a challenging year, but scratching beneath the surface what critical issues need to be addressed. So, Hannah, we've got 10 issues to get through in the next 30 minutes. Where shall we start?
0: Let's start with revenge travel, shall we? And uh, this is one of your picks, Gary. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, it's time to remove uh, revenge travel from the travel industry vocabulary, I think. it's It's been overused. It's come to an end. You know, we've, we've got to start looking forward, not backwards. And also the revenge travel issue, you know, it's it's kind of been co-opted into to, to so many different... Um, context, really. It it emanated in China back in about, I think it was August, September 2020, um, after the initial lockdowns. And Chinese consumers were talking about revenge spend after being locked down just for a few months. And then obviously, as the the region started to reopen, Southeast Asia, Northeast Asia, and China, um, it it took on a resonance because there was so much pent-up demand for travel, wasn't there? And this term revenge travel became ubiquitous. But I don't know. What do you think, Hannah? I think we've just, it's just run its it's run its term, and we now have to look forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, it made sense when it like you say it was that pent up travel, and we had all been trapped in our homes and trapped in our countries. But you know, like you were saying, Gary, this is the second full year of, of travel and tourism really for Southeast Asia since the pandemic. Even China, pretty much, has been open for; they've been allowed outbound travel at least for about one year now, hasn't it? It's been almost one year. Um, so you know, is we I don't think it makes any sense to still talk about pent up travel, right? It's 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 been spent. Now, now like you say, it's it's the forward travel, it's what, what people are planning to do rather than that travel that they had postponed and postponed again um during the wave. So yeah, absolutely. I agree. Let's let's get rid of revenge travel. And I think I'm seeing it a little bit less, but it still does pop up now and then, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, it does. And I think you're right, you know, I think the patterns and, and demand uh, trends have changed since the pandemic. But as you said, it's no longer really just about that pent up rush to, to travel once again, whether that's for, for business, for, for leisure or, or VFR or whatever. You know, the um, 2024 should see a real settling down uh, into whatever the, this new era is going to offer. So, yeah, no more revenge travel. Yes. So on that basis, Hannah, let's let's move on to number two. And this is a very hot topic. This is your choice. Uh, and this is that visa waivers are the next battleground. Tell us a bit more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, as we came into the end of last year, didn't we? We saw so many announcements that was really kick-starting with Thailand. That was back in September last year, who announced that they were going to, you know, essentially waive visas for Chinese arrivals coming in. Then they did it for Indians. Malaysia announced they were going to waive visas. Singapore announced that they were looking with a mutual visa waiver scheme with China. Thailand, of course, started the year off with that bang, announcing that they were going to have this permanent um, kind of reciprocal wave visa waiver scheme between the two countries, Thailand and China, from the beginning of March. So it really seems now it's just heating up. If you are not waiving visas for Chinese or Indian nationals, you're going to lose out this year. And it's the same, I think, not only in Southeast Asia are they they using these kind of visa waivers as this, this carrot to get travelers in, but you can see increasingly other East Asian countries are, are going down this route as well. You know, Korea um, just launched their Hallyu visa uh, called the K-Culture Training Visa, um, and that's going to allow um, people who register at local performing arts academies to stay in the country, you know, for two years. So I think countries are going to get quite creative about the different visas, um, schemes that they are implementing, they're going to get creative about looking at new source markets. Who else can they have visa waiver schemes for? I think Thailand um, this week had said that now they're looking at trying to do that for the UK, um, trying to get this mutual waiver. I think that's going to be the next big barrier, I think you know it's almost the opposite of the pandemic right where we where we built up so many barriers and made it so difficult to get people coming in that now countries are realizing you know if we want to stay competitive and we need to because it's going to be so intense 2024 we don't have that revenge travel <laughs> that pent-up travel people wanted that we have to make it easier increasingly easier for those um, particularly high, high volume high value um, travelers to come in.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. I think that's a, that's a good point about we're going to see more creative use of visa waivers because, as you said, before the, the pandemic, it was simply about waiving visas uh, for your key markets, as, as you said, you know, the high priority markets. I think there'll be a lot of um, eyes on China this year. China, just before Christmas, uh, launched visa waivers for six countries. Five of those were from Europe. We've discussed this before. One was Malaysia. It's also s- since announced uh, what looks to be a permanent visa waiver bilaterally with Thailand. A similar agreement looks as though it's going to be in place with Singapore. I don't think we're finished yet. I think we're finished yet. I think we'll see a lot more uh, new agreements over the next year from China. And obviously that will impact um, Southeast Asia, for sure, Northeast Asia. Um, So, yeah, visa waivers are going to be a hot topic through 2024.
0: Yeah, that's not going to be one that goes away, I don't think. No, I agree. So the next choice is... uh, from you Gary and I think this this one is more of a a wish perhaps than a than a forecast a a guess of what might happen but uh, is creating an ASEAN standard for tourist arrivals as distinct from visitor arrivals tell us more
1: yeah so this harks back to anybody who listened to I think it was our last podcast Hannah we were talking about how Malaysia sprung what was a sort of statistical surprise by announcing that had I think was it 26 million arrivals uh, through November last year, after being a little bit quiet on its arrivals, but that was visitor arrivals, not tourist arrivals. And and one of the things that we're seeing across the region now is that everybody is is counting up 2023, planning ahead for 2024, setting their visitor arrival targets, their tourist arrival targets, and they tend to get mixed. But how do you actually delineate who are tourist arrivals, who's coming into the country, uh, you know, foreign? Um, uh, residents who actually live in a country uh, and return, go go back and forth for business or for, or for, for leisure as well. You also have uh, immigrant labor in, in a lot of countries. You have students coming into countries. You know, as we we've discussed so many times, how do people travel for so many reasons, but how do you actually delineate who are the tourists coming into, into your country and how do you count them more accurately? I don't think it will happen, but I think it will be interesting if ASEAN could create a standard for that because then you would, as you said, at the top of the show, it's going to be a very, very competitive year. It would be great if that competi- competitive nature um, were based on a, on a framework where the statistics were were standardized. Uh, I don't think it will happen. You know, all countries want to use visitor arrivals for many purposes, not just to count up their tourists and their tourist revenue, but also to attract things like foreign uh, investment. So I don't think it would be happening, but it would be interesting if it did because it would create a much more accurate framework.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, like we've, how we we talk about how Singapore doesn't count land arrivals from Malaysia, um, but Malaysia does. Um, so all of these inconsistencies make it very hard, like you say, to uh, to really measure. You know, if if you wanted to see on an absolute terms who is getting the most number of tourists, um, it's, it's hard. It's very hard to get that picture right now because everybody measures everything in a slightly different way. There are a lot of nuances to that, but we can wait.
1: And Particularly in 2024, Hannah, because everybody is you know hoping to get very, very close to or to, to match 2020 19 2019 levels, so um, yeah, it's going to be a rush to uh, attract as many people as you can
0: for sure. Yeah, you see how this plays out, but yeah, um, um not high hopes, but you never know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll put that as a wish, not an expectation, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, let's move on. That's our first three entries uh, this year number four hannah this is where we get gloomy and this is one of your selections it's inevitable it's a statement of reality extreme weather events will hit travel as hard as covid tell us more
0: yeah i mean that might be a little bit extreme right I again mean, we're not going to see borders closing and absolutely zero tourists but you know and i i think I perhaps said this probably for the the beginning of last year was that i i really do believe that um climate crisis is is going to be the next big crisis that is hitting the tourism industry. Um, Even if you are looking at, let's say, um, aviation, and there was a report a couple of months ago um, all about uh, Manila's airport, and they have something called red lightning strikes. And so when red lightning strikes happen, basically everybody has to get off the tarmac. They are not allowed to load the planes, not allowed to load the baggage. um, Everything has to stop at the airport and it's measured by you know when when a, a lightning storm is within a certain kilometer um, radius of the airport um, but this is happening increasingly frequently so you know even the transport under secretary in the philippines has noted you know that this is only going to become more unpredictable more frequent due to climate change and so you can imagine you know this the knock-on effect that this could have, these red lightning strike, okay? it's uh, All all flights are being delayed out from Manila. What impact does that have not only on Philippines air traffic but on the other countries where it's going to as well? And we know right now um, aviation is still struggling to get back up to those levels. They're still not back up to pre-pandemic. They've still not got that manpower in place. You've still got all these issues of spare parts, not enough planes in the sky, all of that. And so when you throw in... These kind of delays due to unpredictable weather, like big thunderstorms, things are only going to get worse. I mean, of course, we've then got haze, which is already starting to become an issue in Thailand. Um, you have the El Nino phenomenon, which is meant to be hitting pretty hard this year in, in Southeast Asia, it's meant to be quite prolonged. All of these individual pieces kind of add up to something that is much, much more. I'm a member of this fantastic Facebook group, um, Tourism Professionals in Laos, that Jason Rowland, um, who we've had on the podcast, uh, moderates and created. Um, And someone had shared there a post that somebody had put. And it was like, oh, should I go to this part of Laos because I'm concerned that there's going to be um, haze? And they they were thinking that already, you know, a few months out, there was no haze there at that time. But that's what's going to happen. More and more frequently, you can see Thailand is already very concerned about haze. There's a lot of articles about that. There's some bill that they're slated to try and pass about clean skies. All of those issues around transboundary haze, as well. Um, but maybe that's just going to become the new seasonality. You know, this kind of time of year, it's don't go to North ASEAN. Later in the year, it's don't go to Southern ASEAN because you know the the, the air quality is going to be so bad there. You're not going to have a great time. So it's something that I think we we are not there yet, but we we run the risk of of it getting there.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, haze for sure is a, an issue that's become more of a year-round thing. It used to be more specific periods. Uh, extreme flooding, extreme heat as well. Two issues that the the region is definitely going to have to to deal with. Rising sea levels, of course. But the the reason I think this is so interesting in Southeast Asia and and could have such a big impact is that travel, particularly in Asia Asia Pacific generally, is very focused around public holidays, festivals, uh, that kind of thing. So there are specific travel periods, aren't there? There always have been in the region. Uh, And if those are impacted by weather events, it could could cause real havoc in terms of when people can plan and actually travel. Uh, School holidays, of course, is another one. But these things are changing. And, you know, I think the issue with climate change and the impact of climate change on everyday lives is that for many, many years, we thought this was a coming storm, but it's here, it's worldwide. You know, you look at some of the uh, the weather patterns in Europe during summer, you know, it's extremely hot in some countries of Europe now. Uh, And summer is when, you know, a lot of people around the world travel to Europe. Uh, Is that going to endure? What about the the ski seasons in some countries in, in Europe don't have much snow anymore, whereas... You look in destinations like in China or, or Japan, they have great, great ski seasons this season. Uh, so will more people be going um, from Europe to, to Japan or to China? Lots of change, I think, uh, related to, to climate and how it will impact travel. Is the industry prepared? Can it be prepared? How how do you actually prepare for events that in many ways often unpredictable?
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is, you know, it's a bit like COVID, isn't it? A lot of it is kind of out of the control largely of, uh, let's say, that the, the small tourism SME business that's going to be impacted by this. But certainly I think there needs to be more concerted efforts um, on a governmental level, on a tourism association level, about getting a lot more serious about sustainability and playing your part in that. So that probably links quite nicely onto our next I wouldn't, yeah, I, I would say it is a wish actually of mine, um, which was looking for more accurate data on the say sustainability gap for Asian travelers. So I think this is super interesting when we are seeing more and more surveys coming out about how consumers are looking for sustainable travel options. And, you know, for for example, there was a booking.com survey that came out and I think it was, um, in their travel confidence index. And they were specifically looking at um, how what percentage of people were more willing to pay for sustainable accommodation choices. And it was something like 73% of the Vietnamese respondents were willing to pay uh, versus maybe 18% only of the Singaporeans. Um, but a really interesting focus right study it's kind of flipped this. So you can often argue that the problem with these kind of sustainability studies is the fact that people will always say, really, that they will be more sustainable. You know, if, if you had an option, if you had the question like, do I want to, do I want to go for a green option, yes or no? You would probably say yes, right, because it's just a theoretical question. Yeah, why not? I'm a good person, I believe in sustainability. Um, yeah. But, of course, what it comes down to then is people actually uh, walking the talk. And so this research was was really interesting. Um, It was called Sustainability Dissonance. It was back in June. But it looked at the U.S. and the European markets. But it kind of flipped it on its head. So they started the interview by just asking these um, questions about historical trips. So it was really on the trips that these people had taken not kind of revealing that there was a sustainability kind of focus or slant to this at all. And then the second half then asked them questions about their beliefs and their attitudes around sustainability. So there were these huge contrasts. So for example, something like 55% of German travelers who were surveyed said they're more likely to choose lodging based on its environmental friendliness as opposed to price. But when they were talking about their past historical trip, just 9% ranked sustainability as a top five influencing factor. So there's this huge gap, which we've always known about, right? We, everybody knows about this. But what I would really love to see is this is Western uh, traveler focused. I would love to see what that is in Asia. Is, it, is, it sim- is there a similar gap? Is it a smaller gap? Is it a bigger gap? I've got no idea, but I think it's very important that we start to learn about that here.
1: Yeah, it's a good point. And uh, I agree with you on the Focus the Focusrite um, survey, which I thought was really, really interesting. I was talking to uh, Madeleine List from Focus Right, who actually took part and did quite a lot of the uh, the work behind that. And she also presented it at the conference. And she was saying that it really was surprising a lot of the elements. But she also said one of the interesting things that they're looking at going forward is how when you do these surveys... they don't really have a great deal of durability because when it comes to sustainability, people's attitudes to climate change uh, are quite flexible. They they tend to um, be impacted by the events around them. So when there are um, climate events in in Europe or the US or or Asia, that really has an impact on people's opinions. But people tend to forget as well, don't they? We have quite short memories. When is it actually going to have a long-term impact on people's thinking? And I don't know whether... In this current era of kind of flux in travel we've had post-COVID, um, you know, we're trying to find the pockets of travel, we're trying to find when it suits us to travel. Um, but once these these events um, have a much more dramatic effect globally, you know, how is that really going to impact how people behave, not just how they think? Uh, I would say, I don't know what you think about this, Anna, I, I still think we're in a transition point. I think it's really on people's minds. They do want to travel more sustainably. I think that is really starting to... To have an impact in their their mental processes, but again, by the by the very nature of travel, it's not necessarily sustainable. It isn't. It, it's 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 insus- it's unsustainable. Um, how do we cross these bridges? And I think there are big, big questions. I think twenty twenty four we're gonna is going to ask and not answer, and um, perhaps some even bigger questions on this. But it's it's a rolling story, isn't it? In the terms of the fact that this is actually going to change, not just people's lives, but probably the lives of the industry as well. Um, and and how do we actually come to a point where everybody's aligned on it?
0: Yeah, it, you, you're right. It is a, it's that big philosophical question. I was thinking that to myself the other night. You know, am I going to twenty, thirty years? You know, be ashamed of working in the tourism industry because it's a contributor to to climate crisis? How can you? How can you balance that? I mean, and right now, I I don't think that, but it, you know, it just occurred to me like, oh, am I? You know, I'm going to be. Telling my grandkids, oh yeah, I was—I I used to help people travel halfway across the world—and what would they think about that? You know, so it's, its yeah, it's this big philosophical question that I think will start to take more shape, um, but certainly isn't there yet.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. So, talking of philosophical and existential questions, <laughs> let's move on to number six. This is one of my picks, Hannah. And this one is a bit of a bugbear of mine. I really think it's time for the travel industry to stop lionizing AI. I've been amazed, really, at the, the particularly the travel media response to AI over the last year. Um, I don't find AI is innovative. It's uh, essentially a logical consequence of machine learning and, and large language programming. It's been coming for a long time. Obviously, the open AI and the generative AI has opened new opportunities in terms of Business processing, you know, most of AI that's being used at the moment is to improve business processes, ultimately um, reduce human resource levels, uh, cut costs and raise profits and, and stock performance. Um, I don't believe it's going to transform travel and tourism. I haven't seen any evidence yet that it is, but I've been incredibly surprised at how the travel industry and particularly the travel media has just latched onto every single new launch of an AI tool. Um, as though this is, you know, real tech revolution. I don't think it is. And I also think that what's happening at the moment in the US is particularly interesting. We're starting to see the first real um, legal case. uh, In this particular instance, it's the New York Times, uh, which is suing OpenAI and Microsoft um, for use of its content. Now, this relates more to media content, less so much to the travel industry. But you know, the backbone of AI is about using other people's data, uh, is about screen scraping and, you know, a legal um, accumulation of data to to feed these machines. And, you know, Hannah, I, I, I just don't see it as innovation. I think it's a dangerous step. I think it's going to result in a lot of job losses and a lot of lost livelihoods. Where does it stop? Mm,
0: big question. I mean, I agree that I think, you know, and... Uh, and- follow this as well a little bit but in terms of southeast asia i have not i would i would say really seen like an ota launch ai and a generative ai tool and think yes that is going to to make them loads of business and that's going to be amazing it's more like everybody is still kind of dabbling with it aren't they They, they're launching these chatbots and everything else but i haven't seen a huge um kind of proof that it's going to really take off yet but I think what you were saying just then about the machine learning is basically the back-end stuff I think is where businesses are going to benefit the most from it you know from when I've been reading around this as well that seems to be where people are really talking about for example Agoda's CEO I think when he was talking to uh, Webin Travel about um, generative AI was saying the biggest opportunity was the automation of their internal and back office processes, um, their software development. So, those kind of things are making those more efficient rather than perhaps that consumer facing side. But, I mean, certainly if you're using things like, you know, Changi Airport, for example, is using, I think, machine learning to speed up the baggage screening system, that makes a lot of sense. You're right, it, it will lose jobs but potentially could also counter, I mean, a couple of decades or so, we're going to be in an aging society in Southeast Asia. A lot of countries are going to face that. Making things a bit more automated could be that solution to not having that manpower needs. Um, But it's, yeah, it's a balance. It's a philosophical question and... And everything else, I agree. Too too big to be to be thinking about on the tenth of January at the beginning of twenty twenty
1: four, Gary. <laughs> I agree. So let's move on to number <laughs> seven then, Hannah. and this is uh, one of your picks. This is about domestic destinations putting in the invest the investment to revitalize themselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is really of um, off the back of, and I think we discussed this at the end of last year as well. Um, how we've seen in the news. Destinations like Langkawi, destinations like Phu Quoc um, in Vietnam, struggling, Boracay in the Philippines, struggling to attract those domestic travelers. Um, And I think this is what you were saying, Gary, when I think we were talking about Singapore was really the fact that countries like Singapore, destinations like Thailand, recognize that you have to consistently put in effort to keep things fresh. Um, But some of these other destinations seem to have got left behind i think they, they have not perhaps had that same mindset that they need to kind of constantly reinvent themselves think of new things to do new ways to attract the domestic market and they're therefore struggling now when there is this as we keep saying this intense competition it's easy to fly somewhere else Um, they need to put in the effort to make sure the product is there and also make sure that the the planes are still flying there and that there are incentives enough for the airlines to get to those destinations. Because, again, you know, um, when you're looking for some domestic flights, sometimes they might be more expensive than flying internationally, in which case it's a no-brainer, right? You're, you're going to fly internationally.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And, and also how much domestic um, airlines, domestic travel infrastructure supports inbound travel as well, not, not just for domestic travelers. You know, people are flying around and traveling around countries once they arrive. I agree with you. that the, the focus has shifted dramatically towards inbound over the past well, what, 12, 18 months. Um, after you know, that COVID period where domestic was so important, it was the only thing available. Um, some destinations are doing this better than others. Indonesia seems to have a much, much stronger handle on how it wants to develop domestic uh, tourism than some, some other countries. Um, but it's definitely one to watch because it is, um, uh, as well, I mean, Malaysia is a good example. You said there, you know, was it 4.5 million? Malaysians traveled north to to Thailand last year. Uh, there'll be various reasons for that, but you do wonder whether some of them would have stayed within their own country if, as you said, some of the destinations had changed a little bit more. Uh, we don't know. We'll never know the answer to that. But, you know, you you would think that uh, destinations will be looking at retaining more of their own tourists as much as possible. Let's see. Uh, it, it's an unanswered question. And I, I guess it's a bit... It's both... Uh, a wish and a forecast really isn't it and an expectation that domestic travel should be uh, much more center um, in terms of planning and processing of of, of tourism strategies
0: absolutely so next pick is from you gary i guess this is a a wish perhaps or maybe not maybe it's a, a prediction a greater focus on the weekend economy versus the weekday economy
1: yeah, so this one has emerged from China, actually, quite recently, is the fact that there's a lot of focus now on the weekend economy. As, as I mentioned earlier, and we've discussed quite a lot, Hannah, travel and tourism in, in the region, very, very focused on public holidays, school holidays, festivals, that kind of thing, and especially weekends, long weekends. Um, and the domestic tourism economy in China has boomed over the last year, uh, and they're calling it the weekend economy because people are traveling, particularly over weekends um, and long weekends. And the numbers are much, much different to to the weekday travel economy. Now, back in pre-COVID period, you would expect a lot of that weekday travel economy was from business travelers. Um, But we don't quite have the same volume of business travelers at the moment. We're still trying to work out how the business travel economy is going to reshape and realign. So that means at the moment, in a lot of countries, not just China, a lot of countries across the region, there is a much, much greater focus on travel infrastructure, travel spending, Um, during weekends and long weekend periods. Um, But that does mean that, you know, you have emptier hotels, you have less flights being filled during weekdays. I think this might be something across the year that we might see polarize even further. Um, And you'd imagine that travel planners and travel marketers will be obviously trying to bridge those gaps. How do you try and promote weekday travel uh, over weekend um, travel? I'm not sure how this one will actually play out, Anna, but I, I, I do have a feeling that it might polarize and become a much bigger issue. Um, because everybody has inventory to fill, you know, across seven days, across 12 months, and across 365 days of a year. Um, And will patterns diversify a little bit more? I'm not really sure of the answer to that, but it's certainly something that's been talked about in China and I think it'll be talked about a lot more in Southeast Asia.
0: Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And especially if, you know, there is more regional travel, then that lends itself to the shorter trips, which could just be done over a weekend or, or midweek. And of course, you know, like you say, Then um, once you you have this polarization, then as a tourism provider, how do you balance the manpower issues for that? If you have to have twice the number of staff on the weekend than you do during the week and all of that, that, that headache of managing that and managing to retain the staff that you need who are at the quality that you need when they can only work maybe three or four days out of the seven. Um, Yeah, I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. The, the more you think about it, more the uh, the more issues it actually throws up. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, that's probably a topic I suspect we'll be talking about over the next twelve months, Hannah. Okay, so let's move on to number nine. This is one of yours, Hannah. Um, this is looking at the media in travel. We've noticed this year that you know travel and tourism has become centre stage in terms of media um, scrutiny. And you said you'd like to see greater scrutiny and fact checking from the media. Tell us a bit more.
0: Yeah. yeah, I mean, in this plays back, I, I was thinking exactly of this statistic, Gary, you were talking about for Malaysia earlier in the, <laughs> at the, the beginning of the podcast. And, you know, so yes, we had this statistic around Malaysia having these uh, this number of, of people crossing the borders, this 26 million. And then suddenly this infographic produced by, I don't know, SE Asia stats, who I've, I've not heard of, but I saw it reproduced everywhere across my Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, other media picking it up and just taking it as as read that it was 26 million for Malaysia and Malaysia's far outpacing Thailand. And, you know, there's, there's no scrutiny. There was no one who who steps back, even for the, the article, when it was first published, I think, in Malaysia, it was still also a little bit confusing, I think, how it was written. And so we, we really need the media to step up and say, actually, does this make logical sense? Can Malaysia really have achieved pre-pandemic levels? No, probably not. Therefore, is there something else going on? Yes, probably. Should I go contact the uh, Department of Tourism, the Ministry of Tourism, to kind of fact-check this and check exactly what these statistics refer to? Yes, you absolutely should. But these things don't happen, and then it gets picked up, and then it gets... Um, syndicated and then it goes around and then it's just taken as 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 read that this is what it is um, and it's driving me nuts um, so I I would really love this year for for there to just be journalists to just sit back a little bit and say huh does this statistic make sense when they said a completely different statistic last week can I question them I mean and of course you know we know the issues that journalists face in the region as well. But I do I, I think we do need some com- more common sense, basically, from from media when it comes to reporting on tourism stories.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with that, Hannah. I think that's a, that's a really good point. It's a really interesting point. I, I've been thinking about this uh, as well. I think a lot of it is essentially that, you know, the, the, the travel and tourism industry in particular, more than probably any other business sector, It's just looking backwards at the moment. It's looking back to 2019, you know, those record levels of travellers that we saw, passengers on airplanes, passengers at airports. You know, everything was was huge numbers in 2019, and everybody is looking at trying to get back to 2019 levels. Once you once you get back to those, once you reach that parity, uh, then you can start looking forward again, and then the numbers become much much smaller, and then I think there becomes a greater degree of rationality in the way that we analyze numbers going forward, but. You know, still everything is looking at percentage levels of recovery. Uh, you know, you look at some of the figures from China this year compared to last year, 2020, well, 2023 versus 2022. You know, we're still going through that huge double, triple digit, uh, sometimes quadruple digit growth compared to the previous year. That's calmed down a little bit in Southeast Asia now because we've been open for, for, for two years. So I, I do think there'll be a, a greater degree of rationality and less of this kind of micro line reporting you know where every single statistic that gets released um, has a story around it hopefully we'll be moving away from that and we can actually get back to some of the key issues many of which we've discussed today hannah which aren't necessarily number based um, but they really do impact how travel and tourism is changing changing very very fast and the drivers whether they're economic whether they're political whether they're you know nature-based climate-based there's so much that we need to talk about And i think the numbers themselves Um, will hopefully start to fade and we can actually talk a little bit more about the critical challenges facing the industry.
0: We can only hope. Um, And so our last pick is one from you, Gary, which is a diversity boost for Thai tourism. Tell us more.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting story. I think that's developed in December is that Thailand has actually put um, on its parliamentary list for 2024 same-sex marriage, it will become the first uh, country in Southeast Asia to recognize same-sex marriage if this goes ahead. There are a number of legal um, and parliamentary stumbling blocks. It's got a long way to go. There are a number of, I think, readings of the bill before it actually gets passed. But if it does happen, as I said, it will be the first country in the region to recognize same-sex marriage. And you know that potentially would have a huge boost um, to its LGBTI uh, tourism sector, definitely for sure. It, would, it could revolutionise destination weddings, things like that, honeymoon travel. Um, there's, there's huge opportunities there. It would be the first country in Southeast Asia to recognise same-sex marriage. Hannah, there are two other countries in Asia that currently recognise same-sex marriage. Any idea what who they are?
0: I love a quiz. Um, Taiwan.
1: Taiwan, yep. Is it?
0: yeah. Yeah. Who be the other one? Interesting. Oh, did Japan?
1: No, no, yeah, no. I, I, Taiwan, they yes.
0: discussed it last didn't they? Just, Japan discussed it last year. Yeah. Go on then, tell me. Nepal. Really?
1: Yep. I think oh. it was last year or the year before, quite recently. So oh, no, Tha- okay. Thailand could become the third country. Um, <laughs> let's hope it happens, not just for the tourism yes. industry, but uh, as a, as oh, a progressive doing. societal move, That will be it will just great news. Uh, fingers crossed that that's something we'll definitely be talking about in 2024.
0: Mm. and so with that that brings the show to a close for the week we hope you enjoyed the podcast and don't forget to send us your thoughts on comments on anything we discussed or anything we missed out you can drop us a message on our linkedin page at the southeast asia travel show
1: yep and as always you can catch up with the southeast asia travel show's full back catalogue on our website the seasiatravelshow.com and you can find us on any international podcast platform
0: So that's a wrap for today, but we'll be back soon to talk more Southeast Asian travel and tourism with you then!